Welcome to Episode 5 of The Party Dolls. I'm George Hayward, author and podcaster. At the end of this week's episode, stick around. We'll have a special guest, one of the Room 6 prisoners who lived the party, Lieutenant Colonel Wally Newcomb. I interviewed Wally Newcomb April 22nd online, him from Corning, New York, where he lives, me from Colorado Springs, and we'll bring you the highlights of that discussion. He'll talk about Ed Atterbury, John Dramisi, and share a couple stories from after the party later on in the American POW's captivity when there were more of them together. Stick around after that, and for now, enjoy the show. Chapter 12. Blankets and Brooms Cheating meant stealing from under North Vietnamese noses. Throughout the summer of 1968 and the months beyond, the men of Room 6 acquired many items while on various work details around the camp. They found plastic bags, which the party dolls would try as flotation devices when they reached the Red River. When the NVA brought stores of canned food into the camp, apparently as emergency rations, the Americans were able to stash several cans, as well as bags of dried rice. When the NVA put them to work shelling peanuts for the camp kitchen, they stole peanuts. Boss said, Dramisi started rationing food to store, but they couldn't just store anything because the rats would eat it. End quote. Eventually, Dramisi stole a burlap bag, which he tied with a length of rope. It's unclear how the prisoners acquired the rope, but he filled the bag with food and other stolen contraband. Then, when he was up in the ceiling, he tied one end of the rope to one of the wooden beams that spanned the gap in the walls between rooms five and six, and the other end of the rope to the burlap bag, then lowered the rope into the gap. Only the most determined search of the ceiling crawl space would reveal the cache. Harder to hide was a stolen chogi pole, one of the bamboo carrying poles that Asian people used to move many different things. Each day, a camp worker delivered the prisoners' meals on a pole, a pot of thin soup on one end and a basket of rice or bread on the other end. The worker set down the pole in the courtyard, then dumped the room's rations into large bowls, which the prisoners would take into their cells and meet out among themselves. One day, the camp worker left the chogi pole leaning against a courtyard wall when he departed. The prisoners knew the worker might return for it, and not just today, so they were not hasty about grabbing the pole. They moved it to a spot in the courtyard where it was out of sight to general observation, but if the North Vietnamese came back looking for it, they'd find it easily. No one came for it for many days. Eventually, the prisoners slipped it inside and put it in the ceiling. Dramisi and Atterbury used pieces of the straw mats they slept on to weave the conical hats common in Southeast Asia, topping their disguises that went head to toe. Dramisi said, We had pulverized iodine pills and mixed it with the red the brick dust to give us the proper skin color. We made uh, uh, surgical masks, uh, which would hide our features. And, of course, would make us look like anybody during the flu season uh, because everybody's wearing these surgical masks. Oh, really? So we had surgical masks. We had the conical hats. We had the brown skin. We had the, the shoes that looked like uh, the peasant shoes. We had the, the garb that looked like peasant garb. The party dolls' attempts at crafting disguises rankled some of their roommates. Boss said, the escape committee tried to draw on our survival school experiences in planning the party. U.S. Air Force Survival School doctrine stated that Americans evading capture behind enemy lines should not mingle with the local populace. Dramisi remained convinced that he and Atterbury could disguise themselves enough to blend in with the locals as long as they didn't make themselves obvious. Dramisi asserted that, quote, looking the part is not an overwhelming obstacle, end quote. Dramisi's belief and intent strengthened his roommate's belief that the party was destined to fail. Newcomb said the party committee became a Dramisi operation. Quote, any planning was all Dramisi. He did all the planning, then he'd ask us to help on stuff. End quote. In fact, Dramisi's peasant garb highlighted one of the many ways that prisoners in other annex cells assisted in the party planning. 
Many Vietnamese people wore simple black pajamas, matching long-sleeved shirts and pants as everyday clothing. The pajamas were similar to the jail uniforms that many American prisoners wore. But other American prisoners, including all of Room 6's residents, wore striped jail uniforms. So, Dramisi traded clothes with someone in Room 5 who had the black uniform. They made the proper arrangements via notes in their courtyard mailbox. Then Dramisi said, quote, I just draped mine over the wall to dry after they were washed. Someone from Room 5 did the same with his black prison uniform. When the clothes were dry, I got the black clothes, and whoever I traded with got the striped clothes. End quote. Decades later, Dramisi still wondered who in Room 5 traded clothes with him. He said, I don't know who that was. By summer 1968, annex prisoners were communicating across buildings not only by various demonstrations of the TAP code, but also by airmail. When prisoners were let into their outdoor courtyard once or twice a day, it was more than time to dump their honeypots, wash themselves in their clothes, and absorb some sun. It was time to communicate. The guards never let a cell outside at the same time as the cell in the same building or across the alley but they would let out cells that were in separate buildings, diagonally across the alley from each other. That did not stop the Americans in those cells from communicating. For room six, their diagonal neighbors were in Annex room three. The Americans would tie a note to a rock using string from a blanket or the nylon threads from their zaps, the rubber flip-flops they wore, which were made from old tires. If a tall guy stood on the top step into his cell, he could see a guy doing the same in the courtyard diagonally across the alley. A few more prisoners would peer under their courtyard doors. The prisoner with the best arm, Red Wilson in room six, would stand poised with the rock note, and when the watchers at the doors and steps coughed that the signal was clear, he'd throw the rock to the other courtyard. One day, room six awaited a note from room three. All signals were sent. A rock appeared briefly in the sky between the cells, then they heard it clunk against the outside wall of room six courtyard and land somewhere in the alley. Ball would exclaim in his retellings, Oh shit, he missed his toss, you know. If the guards found the note, regardless of its contents, the result would be purges and torture that would not end until every detail of the party was beaten loose. Ball said, Do we run around there, fret, 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 can't get the door, can't get some out of there to then Boss said unexpectedly, Next thing we see, I didn't see it, the guys saw it. Some of the door looking, they see he's two feet coming. Pick his stomach up. Disappear back. These guys had jimmied their fucking door open. Ran in there, picked it up, ran back in, closed it. Nobody ever saw him. Every sales courtyard was illuminated at night by a single light bulb but it sometimes took the NVA months to replace broken bulbs. When Dramisi realized their likely escape route off the roof and out of the camp past the courtyard of room four in another building, he sent a message to that cell requesting the bulb be broken. The light was over on the, uh, the, in the courtyard next to it, so I wanted that light out. Now, I don't know who put that light out, but somebody broke that bulb. Room 4 prisoner John Borling wrote in a 2021 email that his cell's courtyard light was high enough that it illuminated the escape roof. It took a total room effort on Lookout and More, with Daryl Pyle and I swatting at the damn thing till it finally broke. Borling noted that he and his cellmates paid for that later. Blankets and brooms were another illustration not only of Dramisi and Atterbury's ingenuity with limited resources, but also the support they received from other cells and the resistance and sometimes outright antagonism they faced within their own cell. In late summer, the NVA issued Room 6 new blankets to replace the prisoners' worn threadbare blankets before the cool season. Dramisi wanted to commandeer some of the blankets for camouflage, and for that camouflage, he also needed brooms. Annex prisoners had ready access to brooms. They weren't a contraband item. The NVA made them keep their cells, courtyards, and campgrounds neatly swept. Dramisi thought he and Atterbury could push enough pieces of straw from the brooms through a blanket that, in the darkness of a moonlit night, a man lying on the ground, hiding under the blanket, would appear to be a grassy hump of earth. Some of his cellmates ridiculed the idea. 
Others accused him of wanting to waste needed blankets on a plan that couldn't succeed. Dermacy countered that his cellmates wanted the blankets for more than warmth. The object was to deny the effort in one way or another. In other words, if, uh, if we can uh, delay this thing long enough, or we, if we can deny him the necessary uh, uh, implements, requirements, or, or, or props, well then uh, we would be able to uh, uh, destroy this effort. But Dramisi was SRO and word was spread room to room that the PC wanted brooms. Dramisi claimed, I asked for brooms and so on a given signal, uh, the brooms came flying over the walls from three different directions. This was notwithstanding the fact that room 6's courtyard abutted only the courtyard of room 5, so brooms from the other directions and other rooms would have had to fly over two walls and an alley between them. Hyperbole or not, Dramisi got his brooms, and he and Atterbury made their camouflage blankets. Newcomb admitted he and other cellmates mocked Dramisi and Atterbury when they were testing their props. Quote Newcomb, Their straw hats they made actually looked like dunce caps, and the blankets with the tufts of straw they claimed they use. In the room, they'd practiced these things. They lay there with a bunch of straw sticking out. People would walk past them and say, Don, do you see anything? Nope, I don't see anything. Mike, do you see anything? Nope, I don't see anything. And of course, poor John and Ed would find absolutely nothing funny about this, Newcomb admitted. Dramisi would later claim that those camouflage straw blankets saved him and Atterbury before they got over the wall. But they were not the only time Dramisi's drive to escape and the willingness to go to any depth in preparation made him a subject of mockery. Several of Dramisi's cellmates shared their versions of the same story. Word came to Room 6 that Room 2 prisoners on a work detail found in the weeds of the main courtyard something of utmost value to the party dolls. Newcomb remembered it was something metal. Baugh said it was a knife. Meyer said it was a machete. In 2018, former Room 2 prisoner Porter Halliburton confirmed it was a small machete. Each man agreed in the retelling that an open sewer of human waste was involved. It may have been an open hole in the sewer system, as Meyer suggested, or just a ditch dug in the courtyard for dumping human waste from the annex outhouses. Each cell's courtyard outhouse was a shack built over a precast concrete vat that had two holes in the top and a sealed plug in one side. Obviously, the prisoners relieved themselves there and dumped their honey buckets there as well. Every so often, the vats got full. The prisoners were made to empty them. Boss said, quote, You could always tell when one was being done because of the stench. End quote. The annex's human waste was dumped in the open sewer. The men of Room 6 were uncertain whether the machete was hidden in or near the open shit pit, as Ba called it. Per Ba and Meyer, the American who found it stashed it in the shit pit. Newcomb thought it was stashed close to the pit. Room 2's Halliburton would later confirm it was hidden near the pit. But whether it was in or out of the pit, someone from Room 6 would need to concoct a way to find it and hide it. Here, every man's retelling reconvenes. The NVA would sometimes bring the prisoners into the central courtyard at night and seat them on benches to watch propaganda films. The NVA would drape sheets on ropes to project their movies and use the sheets to segregate the Americans by cell to deter intercell interactions or communications. Still, it wasn't hard to follow what happened next, whether you were American or NVA. Newcomb said, quote, We were very close to where this thing was hidden, and John starts inching over to try to find it. End quote. Meyer described the scene as, quote, Dramacy was sitting right next to one of those holes. He kind of scooted over and caused himself to fall in there. End quote. Baugh was clear about the intent. Quote, Dramacy, in an effort to get the thing, faked falling into it. Quote. Then he couldn't find the machete. Meyer continued the story. Quote, While he's in there huffing and puffing and blowing, he's feeling for the machete. He never did find it. The guards all thought it was very funny. We thought it was very funny, too. He couldn't find it. He came up out of there just covered. End quote. Newcomb went on. 
The Vietnamese are laughing and cackling, and the Americans are laughing and cackling. The Vietnamese guards came up and took John off to the courtyard so he could dump himself off with buckets of water and clean his clothes. The guards came back, and this was the funniest thing I think the guards had seen in their life, was an American falling into an open sewer. End quote. Baugh summed up the episode. But that's John. He'd go to the extreme about everything. And it wasn't over. Newcomb said, quote, the next day, the communications that came into our room were just hilarious, asking John how he liked his bath. John does not have a great sense of humor, and he sent back something very tersely worded that if you really feel strongly for something, then almost anything is worth the price. Of course, the rest of us are sitting around laughing and cackling, rather enjoying this. End quote. Decades later, it was clear that Dramisi still felt strongly. As I said before, if freedom is worth the risk, well, then you, you make the effort. And if uh, freedom is not worth the risk, and if you're not willing to act as a, uh, a military man attempting to uphold the code of conduct, well, then uh, uh, I can uh, present any number of excuses to convince you that it was not possible and should not be done. No matter how his cellmates laughed at him, to John Dramisi, freedom was worth diving into a pit of shit even if for nothing. Chapter 13. Green Light. Over the summer of 1968, Annex SRO Connie Troutman had monitored the party committee's progress next door. He asked frequent questions of Room 6 via their shared mailbox. Room 5's note writer, Mike McGrath, recalled it asked, Have you planned for this? Have you accounted for that? Langell had complained to Dramisi that his reports to Troutman were not always clear or complete but they were convincing the camp SRO. Troutman was impressed by their planning and preparations. Modified their sandals uh, to be more secure to their feet. Uh, they stole a choking pole that to carry the water bucket with, the brand new bucket, uh, the face coloring that they went through to help disguise themselves. The conical hat that they made, the camouflage blankets, and the, the route they planned to take uh, uh, towards the coast, towards the High Block Harbor, and, and the intent was to, uh, uh, as far as best it may sound, but at least they had a plan uh, to try and, and uh, smuggle aboard a ship in High Block Harbor that was flying a friendly flag. That was really speculation, but, but there was some thought went into it. During his tenure as SRO, Troutman's cellmates advised him on a variety of issues and were involved in a lot of decision-making in camp. McGrath said, quote, Connie believed in staff meetings, end quote. Troutman said, I tried to be as minimal on directives. I thought the guys had this coping with day-to-day life and trying to abide by the code of conduct and do a bunch of do's and don'ts for me. But I did put out a few things. For example, unrelated to the party, but around the same 1968 time frame, Troutman received a note from another room's SRO. The North Vietnamese wanted the Americans to dig them a foxhole. The subordinate SRO requested guidance, in essence asking, should we? A big discussion ensued in room 5, McGrath said. So then he has to come out with a camp policy. Uh, don't dig foxholes for the guards. Troutman said, Maybe this second thing, but but to me that was the closest thing I could think of as giving aid and comfort to the enemy. It was for their their protection, their survival. He gave the okay to write biographies in the blue interrogation books the NVA used, but to give no new information other than what a man gave during his initial capture and interrogation. He mandated Solo, that is, if you're in solitary confinement, uh, okay uh, to be released to a modified member of the DOD Department of Defense, somebody in uniform, uh, or a State Department member that can verify his credentials. He called such orders ADs, Annex Directives. Troutman was a good military man and considered the unseen SRO on the other side of the cell wall to be the same. Troutman said, John Dermese formally requested 
possessions to escape. He was ready to go. And his, his one criteria, which I fully agreed with, uh, we want to go on the first rainy Saturday night. So that was a good, uh, a good criteria. As an American POW, Troutman believed in resisting the enemy as best as possible, advocating and striving himself to adhere to the back U.S. creed established by one of the Hanoi Hilton's longest-held POWs, Navy Commander James Stockdale. It was an acronym defining steps of passive resistance to their captors. B. Don't bow in public. A. Stay off the air. C. No war crimes confessions. K. Don't kiss them goodbye and U.S. unity over self. Troutman also wondered about Risner's directive that had been circulated between the zoo and annex. Risner, the former but presumptive SRO of the zoo, had spread the word more than a year earlier that there were to be no escape attempts without help from outside the prison. But since that directive, Risner had been secreted away by the Vietnamese and no one knew his fate. Could Troutman morally or legally override Risner's decree and let Dramisi's party proceed? Troutman said, I, I didn't want to go against the, another senior officer directive. However, this, this directive was already about a year and a half, two years old. He was in Chicago from us. Uh, I, I felt there was some leeway, some discretion uh, to other SROs under unique circumstances and conditions. Uh, this was a very troubling problem for me uh, to, to uh, in essence, override a, the senior's decision. Uh, could I refuse a man's earnest request, John Dramisi? Could I refuse a man's earnest request to abide by the code of conduct? Considering that, to my knowledge, there was good, detailed planning, it wasn't a whim of the Congress Act. And in spite of a poor chance of success, I thought it was a genuine desire to go and escape. Troutman's staff was divided, some still questioning Dramisi's seniority in Room 6. McGrath said, There was divided argument all the time. Half the people were saying, this is stupid, there's no outside help, there's no support, you guys do it for selfish reasons, you doing all these things. And Conrad was more of a military mind saying, no, wait a minute. We, we are obligated to form an escape committee, and, we, and, we, and uh, if he wants to take it, nobody else wants to do it, why not let him do it? Give him his chance. Let's see what he comes up with. Let's see what he plans. Let's put past on him. See what he responds to him. See if he does things. You know, in time, I was always intended to give him a chance. However, the chance wasn't open-ended. The monsoons would end in a few weeks, then the river would drop, and more importantly, nights would get cold and moonless night or not, they still awaited a Saturday night storm. Troutman sent word to Dramisi. I said, okay, you've got my green light. On the other side of the cell wall, tensions in room six rose. Boss said dismissively, It's kind of tough for nine people when, uh, you know, plan ain't worth shit once it gets over the wall. Now, if there was somebody over there to pick him up, but we'd have been 100% behind that son of a bitch. When this guy wants to walk through downtown after he gets over the wall, what good is it? Most certainly, it would make any future escape attempts virtually impossible. The North Vietnamese would close any existing vulnerabilities and the reprisals against the remaining prisoners would be meant to both punish and deter, with prejudice. Even a rescue mission became less likely. Newcomb said, we gave them some probability of getting over the wall. Their plan was pretty good as far as that. But to get 10 feet beyond the wall? No. We thought that were this done, it might preclude legitimate escape later, though none of us could picture how this would happen or how outside help would come about. End quote. Dramisi continued to scoff at the need for outside help as well as Risner's directive. He said mockingly, Bobby Wagner, a great POW. Bobby Wagner, the first thing I heard when when uh, when I got there was a tape by Robbie Wagner telling me to uh, to give them what I wanted and make these tapes and and uh, nothing nothing will come of it. Well, here I am as a captain being told by a colonel, senior officer, that I could do these kinds of things in a in a calm way. Of course, 
Risner had been beaten and tortured horribly for days before breaking and making the tape. That did not matter to Dramisi, not then and not decades later. Problem was, I shouldn't be doing those things, and I knew I shouldn't be doing it. And I had to take it on my own to do what was correct. And so you wonder why I don't didn't pay any attention to uh, uh, escape only with outside help or that, that baloney, because all that was was an excuse being presented by all those people who who didn't want to escape, who didn't want to take the risk of escaping. Langell remembered. One of the guys made the comment, and it was Red Wilson or Al Myers, and said, you sound big, you go over the wall at high noon in front of all the guards with the rifles out, knowing that the gates were going to be opened and they let us out tomorrow, just so you could get your name on the list for evidence. Where was Atterbury in these discussions? Newcomb was watching him. Quote, Ed was 100% passive. John and Ed were always over in the corner talking. John was pumping him up on this. Ed was not someone to say no, end quote. Yet by November, there were still no Saturday storms to say yes. Boss said, I started getting cold. I figured thunderstorms don't come along in the wintertime. You're not going to make it out there because it gets down in the 30s. Hypothermia might get you even, especially if you got in the water. Over the winter... Logic started to set in with everybody. The party plan was to float down the Red River. They couldn't in winter. Logic also began to take hold next door in Room 5, as well as Hope. Troutman knew that the U.S. had stopped bombing in North Vietnam and that peace talks were underway. He said, We started getting a sense of euphoria in our room that, hey, maybe the war is going to be over. We started having slogans. Golden Gate 68. You know, we were just doing nothing be home uh, this year. I, said, I started to say, why should we risk this escape? Knowing full well that uh, uh, if anyone is caught, whether caught or not, there'll be a severe reprisals. There's always that risk of somebody might, might be shot, injured. I said, why risk this if we're going to be released? Christmas. So I canceled the, the escape. Uh, on that reason, because these uh, pro- talks were in progress, finally halt was on. I thought, let's give it a chance to see what happened. Troutman sent word to Room 6. The party was canceled for the winter. Troutman said, well, That made John DeVisi unhappy, but uh, I think it made a lot of other people happy. Chapter 14. Letters from Home. During his time in captivity, Bill Baugh had a recurring dream as he slept, that he was home in Ohio with his family, but he had to leave them and go back to his annex cell. He did not dream of pain or torture, but the dream's inevitable end was torture enough. As November became December and December became the holidays, the American prisoners realized there would be no Golden Gate in 68. Spirits sagged for some, while others remained optimistic they'd go home in early 1969. The party committee in Room 6 continued to fill the endless NUI in the usual ways. Stories, games, debates, discussions, communications with other rooms, and as always, tension and plans of escape. Things were much the same in the mind of Connie Troutman. He said, Since that was off now until uh, until, uh, April, rather quiet winter and a lot of people I think were relieved. However, during the winter, uh, discussions resumed. I mean, uh, both within our room and with the adjoining room, uh, there, there, there was just a lot of discussions. Uh, the, the weekly staff always consisted of the escape. Troutman and his staff weighed their obligations under the Code of Conduct against the odds of success and certainty of reprisals against Americans who stay behind, including themselves. There were reminders that the North Vietnamese believed that without a U.S. declaration of war, the Geneva Conventions did not apply, and their American prisoners were air pirates and war criminals without human rights. Troutman said, A lot went into this escape. A lot of heavy, deep thought before I lay awake, many a night, that winter, uh, just in anguish. He knew the agonies that lie in store for all of them, 
should the party dolls escape come spring when warmth and the monsoons returned. Troutman said, Knowing what we had been through already with the Vietnamese, uh, they went ballistic on very minor infractions. Uh, in fact, just the art of communicating to them was a very serious infraction. They would not hesitate at all to unleash their rope treatment if you're caught communicating. Troutman conveyed his fears through the wall. And I continue to emphasize to the uh, escape committee, are you prepared to accept the consequences? You will be severely punished for this, no doubt about it. You must be aware of this if you give your okay as well. He also conveyed his fears to his cellmate staff. No doubt all the people in his mind that, hey, there was some collusion here, and I made it very clear to my cellmate saying, hey, you guys might be in some big trouble uh, if this comes off. Ironically, their willingness to risk torture or even their lives came at a time when Newcomb said in the annex the treatment was fairly good for a while in comparison to the other camps. Quizzes, beatings, and propaganda activities had declined, and at times the food even improved to include small portions of meat and vegetables. Don Heiliger remembered an NVA doctor administering a spinal injection to relieve pain after Heiliger was incapacitated by a back injury. The doctor didn't know Heiliger threw it out while holding up his share of a pallet so a cellmate could get in the ceiling. But Heiliger noted, John Dramisi saved me that day by grabbing the bedboard as Heiliger collapsed to the floor. Many annex prisoners believed the improved treatment was a sign that the end of the war was imminent, and their captors wanted to return them to the United States in something of good condition. Newcomb said Langell was chief among the optimists in Room 6. He recalled... Laurie became very optimistic in 1969. He said, I can feel it in my bones, folks. St. Paddy's Day in Frisco Bay. End quote. Newcomb and Wilson had roomed with Lungell for more than a year. They remembered he made the same prediction in early 1968. Newcomb said, Well, Red Wilson had a fiery temper. He said, Laurie, goddammit, shut your mouth. You screwed it last year, and I fear that if you run your mouth, you'll screw it again this year. So Laurie toned it down a little bit, but still went around to the rest of us. Guys, I can feel it in my bones. St. Paddy's Day in Frisco Bay. Newcomb concluded the story. Of course, St. Paddy's Day came and went, and nothing happened. Over that time, Newcomb gained new insight into Ed Atterbury's possible motivation for following Dramacy over the wall. Before Christmas, along with more food and medicine, and less interrogation and torture, the North Vietnamese began allowing some Americans to receive and send mail for the first time in their captivity. It was a selective privilege. Some were allowed mail, some were not. Prisoners who had been used in propaganda activities were allowed. There were captives known to the U.S. and to the world, denying those prisoners mail privileges had no political value. But others were allowed mail for no apparent reason. Troutman said, Some could receive letters, some could... Some Americans resented that their cellmates received updates on family and even packages from home. As SRO, Troutman had to align the troops and set the standard. He explained. I did urge the guys to write letters, even if their roommate could not. This caused some friction. That some guys could write letters, some could. We were all in the same boat. The guys I was with, we were all pretty tough nuts. I, I, I had no weak links in, in our old compound at all. And they were getting favoritism because they were cooperating with the enemy. Oh, I didn't buy that. I didn't believe that. So I urged them, I said, if you get a chance to write, you write. Because they need to know who's alive, if you're well, and your family. Family needs to know this. So I encouraged them to write. As long as there was no propaganda, you have to sign a, a name and humane policy. That was out. But to write letters, do it. Bill Baugh was one of the few who could. He described a closely supervised, methodical ordeal. I finally got a letter. I was allowed to write one. The letters, by the way, were six lines. Short six line. The way they do it, they'd, they'd take you out to an interrogation room, give you a rough piece of paper with six uh, drawn lines on it. And you sit there and fill out these, you know, write these lines. And I'd turn it in, you go back to your room, maybe a week later, two weeks later, 
you'd get called back and he'd sit down, he'd give you an official six line or kind of a fold over, fold over, glue it, and it's a, it's a letter envelope to mail. The six lines that you'd turned in, he'd hand and sit down in front of you and it would be, you may have a word scratched out or a whole half a sentence or whatever, but you weren't allowed to do anything to it. You had to transpose what was left over these lines. And sometimes it didn't even make sense anymore. So you learned to write real bland stuff. Newcomb remembered Troutman's policy made Atterbury very uneasy, but Newcomb was unclear about one memory. He said, There were a few people getting letters, and I think Ed was one. Either that or he told us, If we get letters, I'm going to have a problem. Newcomb said Atterbury confided that in advanced survival school, he had received special classified training that allowed him to encode hidden messages in letters he wrote home and to read coded messages in letters he received. Newcomb revealed this in a July 2000 interview, and it is possible that Atterbury was part of the same program that retired Admiral and POW icon James Stockdale used to communicate with the U.S. government via letters with his wife. That program was detailed in a 2015 Smithsonian Channel show, The Spy in the Hanoi Hilton. Newcomb said, He was one of the code writers. He told us he was very nervous. He said he had to take a long time to write or read letters, and it burdened him to tell us about it, but we needed to know to give him cover and support. The North Vietnamese had already learned of the code's existence, or perhaps of a different letter code, through two imprisoned American code writers that broken but the annexed prisoners did not know that. Atterbury feared he might be the first if he aroused guards' suspicions with his time-consuming, meticulous letter-writing. It's also possible that part of Thalia Atterbury's reluctance to talk years later about her husband was knowledge of the coded letter program. Newcomb would later learn that the code, quote, didn't work worth a damn. It was complex, and the things that worked about it were private codes or emotions. But I don't know how these damn codes worked, and I think the North Vietnamese tried to find names of people. It was unwieldy and high risk. If you got caught, you could legally be tried in the Vietnamese Corps as a spy. End quote. And the code's existence was classified. Under the Geneva Conventions, a prisoner of war could expect to protect his classified knowledge because he'd be treated humanely and never be beaten or tortured into divulging his secrets. Ed Atterbury knew those rules did not apply in North Vietnam and may already have been maintaining a low profile to hide his background flying spy planes. The ropes broke every man, and if the secret of the code was squeezed from his blood and shrieks, the torture would not stop until they knew all he knew. Atterbury may have believed his greatest chance to guard the code, avoid the ropes, or save his own life was to go with John Dramisi. You've been listening to The Party Dolls, a 10-episode podcast of the book The Party Dolls. Next week in Episode 6, the story takes a dramatic turn. The men of Room 6 decide they've had enough of John Dramisi. Please tune in, and if you like us, subscribe, and please leave us a review. Thanks a lot. Take care. Hello, folks. This is George Hayward, the author of The Party Dolls. This week on our podcast, we have a special guest with us, retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Wally Newcomb, who was one of the men in Room 6 and was a front-row participant to the party. Colonel Newcomb, welcome on, sir. Can you... uh? Tell everyone um, a little bit about yourself so so they know how you're affiliated with this story if they haven't read it yet. Uh, I can do that. Uh, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Wally Newcomb, Air Force retired, and I was in Room 6 uh, before, during, and after the escape. Or I should just say during because after the escape, Room 6 disappeared for a while. Uh, I served another couple of years in the Air Force got out, worked for two years with uh, what then was Corning Glass as a corporate pilot. And uh, then I went to Cornell, got a master's degree in business. And since then, I worked for a firm in Buffalo called Sierra Research, rather strange name for Buffalo, but uh, the founders wanted to move out to the Sierras, which they never did. Uh, the, uh, following CR research, I taught in, uh, 
local Southern Community College in Beaufort, uh, South Carolina, Low Country Tech or Technical College of the Low Country, it was called. Moved back to our hometown, Corning, New York, where I taught econ at Corning Community College. And since then, I've now retired, retired. I'm not teaching, nor am I looking for a job. So Corning, New York is more or less my home, and it's my wife's hometown. My job is mowing grass in the summers, shoveling snow in the winter, and uh, uh, animal care. Nice. What kind of animals? We have a kitty cat. Uh, just got her at Christmas time. She was my gift. Uh, my Christmas gift to my wife is permission to get another kitty cat. <laughs> and we have Gilligan. He is 14 months, very big, probably pushing 130 pounds now. Uh, Great Pyrenees. That's a great name for a dog, Gilligan. Oh, he looks like a Gilligan. So <laughs> nice. nice. Um, I'm, I'm a cat guy myself. I, I my mother was a cat woman, and so uh, I've always been a cat lover myself. That's cool. All right. Um, let's talk about the the party, the escape. How sharp is your recollection of events from that was now 50 years ago, 52 years ago, really? Somehow I think it was 20 years ago. As time flies, uh, yes. Uh, I don't exactly remember the events. As a matter of fact, your book uh, reminded me, I, I'd forgotten that one of the funnier events was the camouflage blanket when John and Ed were practicing crawling around the room, uh, uh, not being observed, and we were watching them, and everybody was saying, hey, does anybody know where John is? Anybody seen Ed lately? <laughs> uh, that I remember quite distinctly. And then the... Uh, for the purposes of this, I'll say the indoor contest where some people disputed my uh, championship. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Did, they said you were cheating through dysentery. Yes, yeah. Yep. And I yep. claim I won uh, loud and clear. I think in your book you mentioned that McCushion supported me as uh, <laughs> being the winner. However, I would point out that both uh, McCushion, Loring, and Miguel were the two prime contestants are the only contestants really until I dramatically surged to the front. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the the disappointing thing uh, I think why I don't think back on that uh, too much is there are only three of us left. Uh, right. Laurel and Gal, Mike McCushion, and me. Uh, yeah. And it's uh, in fact that our whole organization is starting to bit by bit uh, fall apart uh, you know on your end you, you know bill ball he's no longer with us right fortunately right. mike mcgrath is still around so there you know some continuity here yep yeah but it's it's every year there's fewer and fewer of you around it's sad it really is sad yeah mike lives about 20 minutes from me i actually see him now and then um oh good yeah yep. yeah so he's been He's yeah, he, he might be guy. coming to the reunion. They were thinking about it, and then uh, kind of, uh, you know, shall we or shall we not? Uh, I'm not coming to the union. I've, to some extent, given it up. And one of the reasons is a lot of those whom I'd like to see aren't with us uh, anymore. I'd almost be better off going to uh, Arlington Cemetery and uh, walk around and say hello to everyone. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's sad. That's heavy. Um, with, with the escape, one of the things that always intrigued me about the story, I want to I want to get your thoughts on this, is when you looked at the code of conduct, there was inherent conflict built in considering the situation you men were in. You know, Article three said you were obligated to escape and to assist your fellow prisoners in doing so. Article four says very clearly you take no action that can bring harm on your fellow prisoners and keep good faith with them. The situation you men were in in the annex is almost, it basically put those two articles in direct conflict. Well, uh, not necessarily, it, uh, not to be a jailhouse lawyer, however, to escape. Uh, does escape mean to attempt to escape or does it mean to uh, affect an escape? And we, uh, uh, we're looking at that uh, escape means more than just jumping over the wall. And we were suspicious of uh, John that his goal was to just make it over the wall or attempt. And he, I think, envisioned he'd be 
generously decorated and uh, you know advance up the totem pole rank wise. So that that was uh, there. That was one of those things that's uh, sort of uh, there will be numerous opinions on it. There was one thing that uh, kind of overrides what it said in the code and conduct. There was a local directive by I'm not sure it was one of the uh, high rankers that there would be no escape without outside help. Robbie Risner. It was, and it recognized yep. the fact that uh, we were in a city. And we did not look like the indigenous population. The only clothing we had was prison clothes, and that the uh, chance we'd stick out like a sore thumb. And John argued that this decision was made while Reisner was over in Wallow Prison, right the smack dab in the middle of the city, uh, an old, you know, multi layers of. Uh, difficulty to get out of the place. Fact is, Robbie Reisner was just over the wall from us in the zoo. Now, he wasn't there contemporaneously, but that's where the uh, decision, the origin, location, the origin of the, the decision. So it, uh, what we did violated that directive and everyone involved knew of that directive. And I'm not sure uh, it, it it still flabbergasts me that we pressed on uh, despite the knowledge we had about the directive no escape without outside help right right as, as Bill Baugh once said to me once you got over the wall the plan wasn't worth shit so therefore there's no plan really uh, yes yeah I, I agree and everyone in the room agreed with the uh, course the exception of John what can, can I if, if I can be a little self-serving here uh, what sticks out most about about the book with you uh, triggering uh, memories of uh, this these things that uh, had faded in the background and uh, well, just, it was entertaining to read do you even remember talking to me about it 20 something years ago yeah, yes, I, I do. Now, uh, if someone had asked me that question, well, it's difficult to ask that question without uh, giving a hint. But yes, I, I recall your calling on the phone and explaining what you were doing and yeah. your connection with Bill Baugh. And then I disappeared for almost uh, two decades until it was, what, three years ago. I finally finished the manuscript. Yeah, and yeah. With it. Yep, yep. Yeah, a few people did not remember me at all. I think Mike McCushion did not. Um, but I had seen Mike McGrath over the years. I had ran into Lori. I had seen Lori Lingell at Bill Baugh's uh, memorial service. So a few people remembered me, but I was just grateful to actually, actually have it finished. And I have to say, sir, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled and proud to be able to tell this story and so deeply grateful to you and the other men involved for letting me do so. Well, I'm, I'm uh, very happy that you took upon yourself to gather the information and tell the story. It, it was it was it was really a fun journey to do so as I started taking all the different interviews and and what I did was I collated them linearly like I would cut and paste your quotes into a linear story and everyone else's as well and then as you start sorting through the, that that chronology told by different perspectives, you start to see the gaps get filled. You start to see clarity in, in what someone didn't remember, someone else did, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was a really fun project. It was like someone gave me the analogy yesterday. It was really like putting together a, together a jigsaw puzzle. And it was. It was. Something I'd like to – this is sort of a cut and paste the back end when I was giving uh, the what I had done since the escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, I came back here to uh, Corning, and while I was working with uh, Corning Glass, and uh, actually it was while I was at Cornell University, I joined the New York Air National Guard up in Niagara Falls. And with the guard over the years, I flew the F-101 Voodoo, the F-4 Phantom, and uh, last but not least, the F-16. Oh, wow. And that, that's how cool. I got to retire as a lieutenant colonel. I uh, 
we had a air defense. Uh, we started air defense alert at first, uh, both Niagara Falls and Charleston Air Force Base, uh, South Carolina, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually it was uh, Charleston. And uh, actually, I moved down to Beaufort, South Carolina, to be closer to Charleston to make the whole thing work out a little better. Oh wow! Okay. Okay. I, I I recalled that you had gone guard after after uh, your active duty time and you had finished out there. Yeah, yes. I remember that. Totally. Um, as I recall, too, uh, you had told me you initially joined the military because you wanted to fly the fastest jet, the, the fastest one seater jet there was before before there were no more one seaters. At the time, I didn't realize there might not be any more one seaters, but uh, that was it. And I believe uh, the F-105 set some sort of a closed course speed record, and I specifically wanted to fly the 105. And I knew that we had those aircraft based in Germany, and I also wanted to be stationed in Germany, which I eventually was. Cool. How fast did you ever fly? You know, I don't think I got that thing going much more than about uh, Mach 1-2. Uh, there, there, there was one mission in the checkout where essentially take off from Nellis, fly due north, you know, couple hundred miles and climb up to a high altitude and you'd had a clean jet and just stoke the afterburner and screen back to Nellis at the, you know, as fast as you get the thing going. And that flight was canceled due to a lack of available airframes. And it was, the instructor pilot said, this is strictly a fun ride that, uh, you know, it's just something to say you've done it. And I kind of regret the, that was, we, I never got to do that. Right, right. My uh, there's a, a airspeed story for you. My first job out of the Air Force. In fact, that, back when I was doing all these interviews with you guys, I was working for NASA, and I shared office space with um, a gentleman named Steve Ishmael, who was working on our program, but at a previous point in his career was an SR seventy one pilot. Mm -hmm. And he just he once told me a fantastic story about taking off from Edwards Air Force Base before dawn, flying east across the U.S., out over the Atlantic Ocean, where he did whatever training or whatever it was he was supposed to do, watched the sunrise over the Atlantic Ocean, and then flew back to California, landed back at Edwards and ate breakfast while the sun rose in California. Oh, that is an interesting story. Yep. Yeah. I thought that was pretty awesome. Uh, can we talk about John Dramisi for a minute? Did, has, was there a, ever any kind of, when I interviewed you guys around the, around the turn of the century, which sounds like such an ancient concept, but it was only 20 years ago, <laughs> uh, we hadn't had any contact with the POW community in years. He had said there were a couple of guys he kept in touch with, but he wouldn't say who they were. Um, and there were times when I talked about some of the other guys, like, for instance, he was visibly touched and moved when I told him Red Wilson had died. He was visibly touched and moved when I told him, you know, anyone I've talked to so far, they may not agree with you, but they don't have any animus towards you. And, and both of those instances, he looked surprised. And I also remember one or two of the guys back then saying, you know, would welcome him back into the fold if he would just come in, you know. Did that ever happen? Do you know if anyone ever, rec if he ever made any effort to reconcile with anyone? Well, uh, we POWs might have been on the bad side. I went through a period, I, I'm not sure what was going on, uh, uh, whether it was children growing up. Uh, for a number of years, I did not participate in POW MIA affairs. And once I started following this stuff again, I noticed that John was barred from membership in our organization. And uh, because I, I did not have any desire to go into uh, the whys and ifs and wherefores of uh, why the organization barred John membership. Uh, but uh, we as a POW group uh, essentially were shunning them. Now I had talked to somebody, not sure who it uh, what was John would go to the uh, River Rats reunions, and they mm -hmm. said he'd always sit in a table separated from everyone else, and John and his wife, 
and he didn't really uh, wouldn't uh, participate a whole lot, but he just he'd show up. And that's the closest I know of John being uh, involved in anything reunion-wise or getting together with, uh, you know, fellow, you know, Air Force personnel. Right. Uh, right. I, John was not the friendliest person toward uh, other pilots. He, uh, I'm, uh, Bill Ball once said uh, I think I mentioned it came up. Bill Ball and Red Wilson were stationed contemporaneously with John out at uh, Luke Air Force Base right after pilot training. And uh, there was an argument one day, and Bill said, uh, John, I know what your problem is, and uh, you, you know, you shouldn't, uh, you know, let your problem uh, guide or steer your behavior. I think that's the point he was getting at. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds like Bill Baugh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, back in those days, uh, at Luke, uh, the Barstoolers, that was the epicenter of the Barstoolers organization. Mm -hmm. and both Red and Boffer were Barstoolers, and of course John wasn't. And I, that, that would be you know, similar to a college student wanting to pledge a fraternity, and no matter which fraternity he went to, he was walked. And right. uh, I, I think that can be a devastating experience. Yeah, yep. I, I, I felt, you know, at least over over the period of the of the escape planning, um, based on everything I was putting together, I, I noticed how there could have easily been a cycle where, you know, as, as Bob described to Macy, he was just opinionated and hard to like, and that makes everyone kind of standoffish towards him. But the more standoffish people get towards him, the more withdrawn and surly he becomes. And it creates a cycle, especially when you're trapped in one room. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally see that. I want to talk now about Ed Atterbury um, and, and the possibility that he had somewhat of a double life, too. You know, you talked about... Um, you told me about him being part of the coded letter writing program, which was probably the same one that Stockdale was part of. That's and correct. The, and the Smithsonian Channel did a whole thing about the spy in the Hanoi Hilton and wrote about that or did a show about that. Yes. Uh, how much do, do you think, like I postulate in the book that it almost seemed as if the, the, the North Vietnamese didn't realize that he was a spy plane pilot for his whole career. I mean, to me, that makes him somewhat of an intelligence asset. Yet he was being stored—he was being stored, if you will—with general aviators as opposed to the higher value prisoners. Do you think he was intentionally trying to keep a low profile and stay in the background in every way, so as not to draw undue attention to himself with the, with the Vietnamese? Uh, well, I don't think so because he did the most spectacular thing as, as far as not maintaining a low profile, participating in an escape. Well, I mean prior to that, though. Prior to the escape. Uh, like everyone said he was quiet, didn't talk a lot, wanted to seem to stay in the background. That, that's just his personality. Okay. Yeah, and right. uh, he, I think he, he is... Uh, Best uh, venue for being jovial at Atterbury was uh, at the officers' club uh, hangar flying. Uh, he uh, he would uh, he would come out in the room. He he had this pipe dream. Sorry, he didn't get to uh, carry it out. He wanted to, uh, once he was got out of prison camp. He wanted to buy a Harley Davidson motorcycle, and he envisioned riding this thing all over West Texas. Oh, wow. And he just, you know, go on, you know, forever. I'm, he'd go around the room. I'm riding my Harley. I'm riding my Harley. Uh, wow. 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 I wish I'd heard that um, story before. I totally would have included that in the book. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> 2020 hindsight is a great gift. Uh, I wish I'd mentioned it, so. Right. That's a, or anyone else for that matter. That was one of the things that was, you know, always struck me was no one could really tell me much about him, you know, besides the, the famous story about him being in the, in the O club before he uh, deployed to, to Vietnam. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Yeah. I back to uh speaking of Ed and also flipping back to Dramisi, uh, John Dramisi's family are the o- is the only contact with room six people I have not made. Um I've I've tracked down I had contact with Ed Atterbury's family, um had some communications with them through his niece, um, but um, respected their privacy ultimately. They didn't really want to get involved with the project. Uh, just recently, about two weeks ago, tracked down uh, Al Meyer's wife with Mike McGrath's help and also the help of a TV station in College Station, Texas. Um, but I've never been able to make a contact with anyone from Dermisi's family, and I've sent numerous emails or messages to you know who I think is his brother, who might be his nephew, that sort of thing. Yeah, I... Uh... I knew uh, nothing about the family. I know he had a, a daughter. I think her name is Andrea. Hmm. Uh, by the first wife. Um, if you want to find out a little bit about his father, Google K.O. Leonard, boxer, Philadelphia, PA. Really? Yeah. That, that was his uh, ring name. And uh, his father had a... a some supporters, uh, sponsors, if you will, uh, at the end of his uh, John's father's fighting career, his sponsors bought him a farm in southern Pennsylvania. And I think it's where John was living just outside of Boswell. Yes, that's where I went to, to see him when I interviewed him. I yeah. actually went out there. Yep. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm curious, can you describe what his house looked like, the farmhouse? Honestly, sir, it was so long ago. I, I remember his his barn was in a state of somewhat disrepair. I mean, it was solid, but, you know, there were like holes and whatnot. It had a charm to it, actually. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't remember his house at all beyond sitting in his dining room talking to him for quite a while. Yeah. Do you remember, did he have any cattle that he was raising? Yes, he did have cattle at the time, um, just a few head, and he was breeding his own. He was working out, he had a program where he was trying to like breed his own. Oh, good, good. Yep. Uh, and at the okay, time no. he said he was also making composite, uh, building his own composite airplanes and selling them. Uh, that's quite a undertaking. I, I kind of right? surprised he did that. Uh, the, uh, okay, uh, when you read about K.L. Leonard, what we knew about uh, his father is that he had a shot, a shot at the title for whatever weight he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not, not going to say any more. I'll let you uh, then read the uh, uh, what you find Googling K.L. Leonard. It was, I was impressed by him because he was probably in his mid-60s at the time, and he was built like a college gymnast. He was barrel-chested, narrow-waisted, looked 20 years younger than he was, and you know, just moved with grace and you know athleticism, and it was impressive. I, I remember saying to him at the time, I hope I look like you when I'm your age, you know? <laughs> well, you know, if uh, he were still around, uh, John would do anything to help people with uh, physical training and exercise. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Yeah, that was that was clearly a big thing to him, and I remember I remember that. And in, in, in all, as the story came together, you know, he always continued to exercise despite whatever he was suffering from. Yeah, um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Is there anything else you want to share in particular? Anything you remember? Uh, well, I'd forgotten this thing was uh, fifty years ago, and to some extent, I've not. I've decided not to dwell on. Uh, things of the past, the prison stuff, I've washed out of my mind uh, pretty much the bad stuff and just uh, remember the good stuff and about the, or I shouldn't say good stuff, but humorous stuff. Uh, I was saying, gee, if I ever uh, get around to writing anything, which I probably won't do, is right after we came back from uh, the uh, uh Oh, camp, the rankers call it Camp Hope. I think we call it the Snake Pit. It's out there. We moved back there after the Sante Raid. And uh, the, uh, uh, let's see, what the heck? Oh, yeah, that that Christmas, 
it was the first time we had a whole bunch of people together and we could uh, you know get uh, ideas and things like that we we had the movie telling the uh, educational programs mm -hmm. uh, and for education what was really successful were people who had been stationed overseas giving uh discussing the country in which they were stationed and you tell about you know the geography and uh you know where the rivers are what the agriculture industry in the country is like what other industry is uh there tourist stuff uh things of that sort and they, people had a, a great deal of interest in this and of course we all had once we were getting out of prison all these fantasies of trips we were going to take <laughs> yep all right well thank you so much for your time George, uh, thank you very much. And again, uh, thank you for your interest in this thing. And if you see uh, Mike McGrath, tell him I said hello. And although the stuff, uh, the spy in Hanoi is out, uh, Mike uh, still thinks or that it is classified top secret. And anyone who talks about it could be court-martialed. Mike thinks that? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, huh. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's widely discussed, and since the Vietnamese knew about it, I consider that it de facto has been declassified. I would think so, too. I also wonder if that was why um, uh, Ed Atterbury's wife didn't really want to talk to me, too. Well, that could be. Yeah, I've always wondered that. Although the wives were, uh, were in on this. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, they, uh, they didn't have the... the the code or anything, but they uh, were told that if you could uh, write write a letter and put in there what you want to say, and we have some reasons why we might want to rearrange the words. Oh, okay. So they didn't have to write in code themselves. That's correct. Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. And uh, despite all of this, uh, Ed was the only one in the camp who uh, didn't know that he'd been promoted to Rick Major, or the, Ed and those of us in our room. Right. Everybody else knew about it. Had he known about that, I don't think he would have gone on that uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. Yeah. Sad, man. Sad. It is. All right. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Take care. Mm -hmm.